the jury didn't hear this or that or or this evidence didn't come in. I'm used to that. Every single day, there's somebody inside just like me who's incarcerated because someone else committed a crime and you're supposed to know what they're doing or what they're thinking. Unfortunately, that's how felony murder works and that's how they scare the communities into believing that everyone should be incarcerated. Welcome to The Hardest Up, a podcast about second chances and redemption. I'm Chris Marte, a city council member representing my community in lower Manhattan. And I'm Moya, a producer here on The Hardest Up, and I'll be filling in for Koss, who is actually out today. So last week, we spoke with Alexandra Bailey, an advocate from the Sentencing Project. She talked a lot about the impact that our criminal justice system has on domestic violence survivors. That's right, Chris. And today we're talking with one of those survivors, Kelly Savage Rodriguez. Kelly spent decades in prison for a horrible crime she didn't commit. After surviving years of abuse, she tried to escape with her two young children. But when her abuser discovered her plan, he killed one of them. He was just three years old at the time. Even though Kelly called the police seeking help, she found herself convicted of torture and first degree murder. Kelly was sentenced to life without parole, but after more than 20 years behind bars, then California Governor Jerry Brown commuted her sentence in 2017. Ever since then, she's been working tirelessly to help other domestic violence survivors and women prisoners. Kelly, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate all of you. We're really interested in hearing your story. Can you just tell me what did life look like before the abuse? Truthfully, I don't know what life looked like before abuse, um, before incarceration. My first experience without abuse was in incarceration. So that makes it a little bit difficult for me. Um, I grew up with a lot of severe abuse and left home at age 14 and survived until incarceration not realizing I didn't have basic skills, let alone um, the skills I needed to survive. The abuse that I experienced before incarceration um, led me, before this relationship, led me to um, minimize and downplay the extent of the abuse that I was currently going through because it was less severe, it was more uh, verbal, unfortunately, I would have taken the beatings any day versus uh, what my son went through, what Justin went through. Justin was abused for um, any behavior that I um, perceived that I I might have done, like not coming home quick enough. Um, I was in school and sometimes I would try to stay later to try to see if I could get teachers to, you know, allow me to take another class, do a little bit more. It was um, going, I was going to school during the day and night to finish high school. And um, any way I could get another class in to, to finish, I would try to do that. And one of the incidences that, uh, stands out in my mind is is me trying to use my life skills as one of my credits and it would have been a three unit credit that you know would have helped and I was trying to, you know, get the teacher to work with me quickly and, you know, during class so that I didn't have a problem. And unfortunately, um, he needed me to stay after. And I was about 25 minutes late from getting home. And uh, yeah, it's just a, a normal part of the process to uh, be afraid. I learned not to be afraid inside prison, uh, which is kind of backwards, yeah. a lot backwards, but 
yeah, a reality of my life. So there wasn't a lot of violence that wasn't in my existence before incarceration. When did you start planning? When did you finally decide that, or was it people, your people in your community, your tribe that decided to tell you, let's, let's make a plan. Let's, let's see how you can escape. How did that idea come about? I really wish it was a tribe. Um, I didn't have anybody in the town except one friend that had just moved to another town. Back then, they didn't have a bus or a dial ride or a taxi. They had Greyhound every other day. And um, my mom was incarcerated at the time. My mom was incarcerated most of my life. And she was in Stockton Prison at the time. And her and I made the plan for me to try to escape. I was going to be starting at the local college in two weeks. But uh, a few days um, before the crime happened, I woke up, uh, we had been arguing and I woke up, I was sleeping on the couch because we were arguing and woke up to my leg being tied to the couch. I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew I couldn't move. And he was tattooing his name on my ankle. Um, I had, as I said, my mother's incarcerated. So um, I needed to, I had certain values that I had learned from her. And one of them was this myth that, you know, if you tattoo a, a name of somebody on your body, that you're going to end up breaking up. So it was a thing that I didn't want. He knew it. He didn't care. He, you know, knew that things were getting tense and he was no longer going to um, have the excuse of not working because the kids were with him, because the kids were, would be with me at the, at the college. They would be going to school and I'd be my career choice was to um, be a daycare preschool teacher. And so the kids would go with me and I would be able to then, you know, get the credits I need while they get watched during the day. And then I get to go work with them at the daycare, which would be absolutely amazing. And so there was a lot of control that he was losing. I just didn't understand what any of that meant at the time. And so my mom and I made the plan that when we went to visit family right after graduation, right before starting at the college, that we would just go down and visit for a few days and um, take a trip to the store and disappear from there. My, I didn't know where my sister lived she had moved and so if I didn't know where she lived he couldn't know where she lived so the plan was for us to go to the store and then disappear with my sister Unfortunately, it was uh, one night too late the night before we were supposed to get on the bus at 7 15 the next morning and unfortunately we didn't make it uh, can you tell us a little bit about that day the day that changed everything and your and your call to the police as well yeah definitely the plan first started after the tattoo incident the next morning. We don't speak. We don't speak most of those last few days. A lot of discussions between my mom and his mother, who lived in a different state, who lived in Florida at the time. And, you know, a lot of justifying that it's going to get better, you know, that things are, are going to get easier. Yes, he was really inappropriate, but just take a breath and, and everything's going to be okay. Um, you know, I said he needed to sleep on the couch and I ended up sleeping on the couch because of course he wasn't going to. I didn't know that he had in the last three weeks had recently started smoking methamphetamine and I didn't have any idea about that until trial. As the days were progressing, I was trying to do everything the domestic violence hotline had suggested. 
unfortunately, they did, the local domestic violence center was in Fresno, which is an hour away. I didn't understand that at the time, nor the extent of the distance that they would have to travel. I just understood that, once again, nobody was coming. My mom was in prison. She couldn't come, but she was doing the best she could from where she was at. And so what we attempted to do was follow all the different guidelines that they um, that the domestic violence center suggested. And one of them was to make sure that I didn't have any outstanding bills, debts in that area, you know, cashed all checks, make sure that, you know, all the domestic violence things that they, they teach you on how to escape. One of the things that happened was the day before he had seen me with the kids' birth certificates. He was supposed to leave and he came back, unfortunately, probably because he was trying to you know, watch what we were doing. At this point, I didn't know that he was suspicious. And so I made some excuse that I was just getting ready for school because that would be right after we returned from the trip. And I don't think it worked. It continued to get worse. That evening was was extremely difficult. Um, we had a fight over him because he felt that he should be punished for something I didn't feel he should be punished for. And uh, punishment to me meant standing in the corner or sitting in a chair. I did not believe in hitting because of the abuse that I went through. In front of me, he never hit him. He would put him in a chair. He would do these things. Unfortunately, behind my back, that is not what was happening. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, so it, it makes it extremely difficult. Um, and so I went and did the, the basic things that I was supposed to go do planning for that day. I was supposed to go shopping to a bank, um, uh, to a store to grab little things for the kids to have on the Greyhound, you know, snacks and, and toys and things to play with. And I was supposed to go to one more store, passing the police station on the way there, on the way back. The You know, obviously the bank has cameras. All these different places have cameras that indicate where I was, when I was where. Um, at different times. Um, something told me, a gut feeling told me something wasn't right. I don't know why. So once again, in the same guise of, you know, acting normal, I called home with the pretense of asking about a vacuum cleaner bag, like the number of a vacuum, vacuum cleaner bag, because something in my gut just didn't feel right as I was checking out of the store. Uh, I just something just felt really, really bad. All of a sudden, it was like a, a, a physical pain. And so I called home and he said, you know, he wasn't waking up, but he still expected me to go to one more store. I still was supposed to go to the grocery store and get the burritos Justin wanted for dinner that night because the next morning was the plan to leave. So um, I was supposed to still go to one more store. And he just said, like, you know, yeah, that's no problem. Just hurry. But, you know, I'm waking, I'm trying to wake him up now, but he usually gets right up and he's not waking up. And, and that triggered me because I know he immediately gets up. And so I immediately started fast walking on the way there, trying to jog. I'm a heavy set girl. I'm trying to jog my way home as fast as I could. All this, once again, is on recording, but none of that mattered. I immediately um, ran in the house. He was not in the bedroom at the time. I ran straight to Justin's bedroom and we started fighting. 
he came in and we started fighting and he's like trying to stop me and I'm trying to go for the phone. The phone is not in that bedroom. It's one phone for the whole house. It's a two bedroom apartment. And so I'm trying to go for the phone and he is fighting me on it. For some reason, he keeps going to one side of um, the room and I don't realize at the time that is where he has um, stored something that he is going to stab me next. He apparently intended to take us all out. But um, what saved me was when on my third try, actually dialing 911 and getting a response, that's what stopped him. And then he started helping with CPR after that. Well, thank you for sharing. It means a lot for us, um, for you to open up about what happened. And so the, the police officers eventually do come to your apartment what happens when they when they arrive? That was an absolute blur. I just remember, you know, them telling me to step aside so that they can help. They took us to the hospital separately. Um, me and Crystal, Crystal's my daughter, uh, went to the hospital together, and they took Mark separately. And several hours later, they finally came in and told me that they tried the best that they could. So how soon after were you sentenced? That night they detained me and they weren't, they claimed that they weren't going to, uh, you know, that I wasn't being charged. They just wanted to find my family and, you know, understand more. But, uh, you know, there's no family in the area, that kind of thing. And so it took about five days for them to actually charge me. And then three years of going back and forth in court. I had a pretty crazy situation for trial. Enough to write a book, kind of. It it was a pretty bizarre situation, unfortunately. And even those five days, you're still trying to process what even just happened. Absolutely. You know, let alone thinking you're going to end up in prison. Yeah. You know, you're still trying to just process the loss of your son at that time, I'm assuming. Yeah, just honestly trying to hope that, like, it's all a lie. Like, he's okay somewhere, you know. I did everything I could before incarceration, never to end up in incarceration because I knew so much about it. I wouldn't even drive my own car. You know, it probably led to a lot of my own isolation because I didn't ever want to end up in a situation that I had visited my whole life. And I absolutely never thought by just trying to survive. They even used the fact that I was trying to get an education against me. Like I... I, didn't want my son because I wanted an education so I didn't have to be on welfare. Like that was probably the hardest part was it didn't matter that I did everything I possibly could. It didn't matter that I tried to help. What mattered was the conviction. And, And they made that really clear. If you don't help us, you're going down with him. And I kept saying, I would help you any way I could as long as I get the truth. That's all I care about is I just want to know what happened. I just want to understand how this happened and what, how this could happen to this precious, absolutely innocent, sweet little boy who did nothing wrong. And the reality is um, I didn't understand traumatic bonding um, for my abusers. I, I ran. I stayed away from them. Um, and Justin looked for his attention and his approval, not because he wanted it, but 
because he knew, uh, you know, instinctively as a survivor to to do that, unfortunately. And um, and I blame myself for that. He shouldn't have that skill. I have that skill because I had to. He shouldn't have had that skill. Um, and so what I saw as him adoring his father was him trying to save me for more hurt. Mm. And a baby shouldn't have to do that. And unfortunately, he did. And so I, I, I deal with a lot of guilt for that. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Um, before we actually move on to when you were actually in prison, I wanted to know, you talked a little bit about you were, they used it against you that you were trying to get an education. And then you even mentioned like there was surveillance camera of you power walking out of the store. So can you just tell us a little bit about that hearing sentence? Um, well, because um, I, I didn't have good representation at the trial, it wasn't brought up. My lawyer just kept saying, well, the TA knows, so it doesn't matter. You know, clearly it's not an issue until closing arguments when we can't produce any evidence. And then they produce the evidence. Well, nobody ever, you know, really showed that she wasn't there. They said it. They said we have proof of it. But did you see proof? There was no proof, which there was, of course, but, you know, it just wasn't produced. And and to know that the DA's whole theory was that, yeah, I was just done being a parent. Now I had moved on to something greater, getting an education, which is insane. I just wanted off welfare. Like all the documents of trying to take the kids to Head Start and all those kind of things, all the things that would have proved that I was doing everything I, I was supposed to or actually above and beyond trying to fight just to, you know, have the kids, you know, have early education and, and more opportunity to go to school so that, you know, we could do better. None of those things mattered. My lawyer didn't want to produce any of it because it didn't matter. They knew I, you know, out of 84 witnesses, his mom and his mom's best friend were the only ones that said, we know Kelly didn't do this. We never saw Kelly do that, this or that, whatever. And, and I get that, but the evidence should have been produced anyway. It didn't matter that people knew I didn't do it. What mattered was the evidence, all the things I was doing to fight for him, for both, uh, for all three of us, you know, to have a, a safe, healthy life long term, which would, would have meant getting into Head Start, would have meant going to school, that kind of thing. And then the judge eventually sentenced you to 23 years without parole. Uh, no, life without the possibility oh, of parole yeah, life and 15 to life um, and three years cultivation charges. And we fought for many years. There's a domestic violence law here in California that allowed us to continue the fight based on not having expert testimony about domestic violence at my trial. And so we went back to court and fought for many years. Unfortunately, my judge is still part practicing retired annuitant. So we knew we were going to have a really uphill battle. My lawyer had been disbarred for a meth lab. Um, so we knew he wasn't any help or support. Unfortunately, he had a bad accident and couldn't even tell them all the bad things he had done during the trial, let alone what he didn't do. So the sentence stayed at life without the possibility of parole until we um, finally submitted a commutation to the governor at the beginning of 2017. And when you when you heard the sentence, you know, 
must have been like a few weeks that I, I could never relate to or never really experienced. What was it like when you first entered prison and knew that this was probably going to be your life at that point? Actually, I didn't care if I got the death penalty. There was a little part of my soul, just a little part that said, that's not possible with the things I've done in my life and who I am as a person. But the other part, Justin wasn't out there. And I couldn't do anything that was going to help him get a lighter sentence. And um, even though they kept lying and saying that it wouldn't help him and he'd still have 25 to life, I didn't believe them. There was one conversation where I heard 15 to life and it didn't matter. I just wasn't willing to help him. So I knew that that was going to be the sentence. And I knew that I just needed to do everything I could to make my environment better right where I was going to be. Because without Justin, I knew that I was putting myself in a position by not taking the deals and I would rather be in that position and not help him. And you mentioned while you were in prison, it was actually one of the most safer environments you, you've been in. What would you do in your day to day? Can you you know paint a picture of prison life for you? Yeah, um, I am extremely lucky. I chose to go in, as I said, my mother's incarcerated for a lot of years. She's a heroin addict, was a heroin addict. And so her environment was a lot different than mine. I chose to find ways to make my environment better and um, to do better with what I was doing. By the time I was done, I created, with a partner, I created a domestic violence group. I created a grief counseling component. I was hospice care, working with people at the end of their life, supporting them um, as they pass. I chose to do things to better the environment that I was in because that's where I was going to be. And the reality was everyone else around me was going home to be in communities with my family and my friends. And so I wanted them to be healthy and healed the way most of us deserve to be before going into incarceration, but aren't. A lot of people think that we're getting rehabilitated when we go inside. Most of us are just learning basic skills like boundaries and putting self first. We're taught as a society that we're supposed to honor men or people of authority. And, you know, especially as women, you know, you're supposed to honor the parent and you're supposed to treat them with the utmost respect, but you're not guaranteed that same respect back. And and I taught my son to respect authority. And for what? Because that authority abused it and harmed him. But only when I wasn't there, just like authority does inside and in the system, we have to make sure that we hold them accountable. And that was probably my best job inside was I was an advisory council member. So I would fight for issues within the institution. And that's where I gained my voice to realize that there's so many like me and I needed to help them as they exited the institution. And um, so that's why I made the institution better. And I, I know I made a huge impact because when they kicked us out of our prison, which is very rude, how do you get kicked out of prison? <laughs> and when they kicked us out and gave it to the men and, and sent us across the street to yet another institution, the amount of people who, who wanted the groups and the curriculums that I had created, uh, most of them I had created by myself or with support of a, a couple individuals. Most were not like brought into the institution. Really proud of the work that I've done and and it's continued so that's what's important that, that's phenomenal and 
it's it's really incredible. How do you start a program like that in prison? Do you do you talk to the wards, the officers, or is this something that you start helping another inmate and then eventually the network grows and eventually you start meeting frequently? Can you describe that process a little? So there's always a proposal that has to happen with anything. But so like the sign language classes that we started, that started individually. And that started with one unit at a time. We started creating ways just to learn how to do sign. I'm hearing impaired. Part of the problem with the whole situation was there's a lot of times that I don't hear. He knows I wear hearing aids normally. And so back then I wore hearing aids normally. And so it was, it was easy to, um, to find a niche in that area. People wanted to learn something new when it came to grief. It was trial and error. It was realizing that we had an angry environment, that it had nothing to do with anger. It had everything to do with just absolutely trying to come to grips with the fact that your reality is different than when you, you know what you thought it would be. And you know, you've got a lot of issues that you're not dealing with. So that's where the grief component came in. And and with the grief, we started adding like parenting, parenting for teens, that kind of thing, so that people could could start building some of those bonds. But the curriculums that involved administration were a lot more difficult. That's a, a lot of technical um, work with the institution, but it was well worth it. It is, um, depending on the group, we ended up with our domestic violence group, we ended up with eight different groups of two doing domestic violence work every Monday night with four different curriculums from basic domestic violence, um, boundaries, looking at um, patterns for change, like what you can do to set those up, looking at the batterer's perspective, both from the eyes of the person who was the batterer or someone who gets in relationships with the same types of people to understand like, you know, no, I don't have loser on my forehead. That's not how people are attracted to me. I don't set boundaries and that's how I'm in these relationships and I need to learn what those boundaries might be. And then the last one is incest and rape curriculum. And I and that's the curriculum that I started one-on-one -on -one first because that's really deep and intense work for someone to do. I did, you know, obviously on myself a couple different times um, working with staff before learning to teach others and going from there. Wow. You know, typically when we have folks on the podcast, prison is the hardest part of their life. You know, that's where they hit the greatest darkness. And typically they turn it around either in there or after they come out. For you, it, it seems like the hardest step was before prison and prison gave you an opportunity to connect with others, to empower yourself, to find your voice, to become an advocate. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Part of that was I just couldn't wake up every day and not have some way. I know in my heart that Justin knows I never harmed him and, and that I would absolutely do anything to protect him. And now I need to make sure that he knows that every single day I live with the memory of making the world better for him, for his memory, for for what he would have done in the world. Because I know he would have done great things. And that's probably what makes it hard to re-enter the community, because these are the things he should be doing. His first. Uh, two weeks away or less than that from finishing my bachelor's degree. Wow. That should be him finishing school. Not me. 
you know, so it's, it's hard. Yeah. Congratulations. Yes. Early <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. How do you heal from such a traumatic experience or are you still on that healing journey? Absolutely. Always still on that healing journey because it, it could just be like the littlest things or something major. So I was just speaking with one of the girls from the program when I first got out. Because of my situation being the way it was, I was allowed to go into a program that had children, which was a huge benefit. I mean, people trusted me. I was afraid every single day being in there, but they trusted me. And being in that environment was was really difficult because the first thing I see when I wake up in the morning is a, is a little boy running around. And so those kind of things make it the hardest because I think about like him, you know, running around being normal, seeing my niece who's the same age, who's just like him. You know, those are probably the hardest parts. And what he would be doing at this age or, you know, that age, that kind of thing. That's probably the hardest. Um, but it's also remembering that I know I've affected a lot of great change. And I couldn't have done that if I wasn't in this situation. Yeah. And speaking about all the change that you've done, the governor of California, Jerry Brown, recognized all of the change you were bringing to that prison and all of the change you were bringing upon yourself. How did he get in contact with you or hear your story? How did that all come about? Uh, so that's a kind of crazy one. So our now vice president um, was given an opportunity to finally resolve the case back and forth in court. But um, since she helped create the law that was helping me, of course, she's going to do the, you know, the right thing by all these individuals who are out here now fighting from prison. But of course, that's not how it works. She allowed the same myths and rhetoric that we're, you know, the whole purpose of the bill is to, to fight those kind of things and to educate judges and juries about domestic violence and so that we, you know, make sure that people have a fair shot. But um, unfortunately, it didn't work. We tried everything. There was over 10,000 signatures um, in less than six months to our vice president and to our governor at the time, uh, Jerry Brown, um, you know, asking them to change the decision, in, you know, in my county itself. And so finally, by submitting the commutation, before that, my lawyers are absolutely amazing. They also spoke with Helen Prejean, who wrote uh, Dead Man Walking um, and does all the death penalty work. She actually contacted Governor Brown and they were going to even have a dinner to discuss my situation. Uh, my lawyer, as I said, fought very, very, very hard. He was uh, sick at the time. He was about to pass away. And um, we wanted to try one ditch effort and so we suggested the commutation and he immediately said absolutely I want you guys to get on that immediately and within three weeks of it being submitted I was interviewed which is pretty shocking I was an add-on and that was in May of uh, 17 and then um, in November of 17 he commuted my sentence and so when you came out back to society how did it make you feel and like you know, it's been a long time and things in the world has changed. I remember one story I bring up with my brother who, who was in and out of prison was that he didn't know what a smartphone was. You know, he went in when the flip phone and everyone had that. 
And uh, he actually had to ask someone, where's the nearest payphone? Because he couldn't use a smartphone that they handed him. But how is life for you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, they had one of those brick phones that only doctors and drug dealers had back then. Yeah. Uh, I never even used one, obviously. So uh, there was nothing and I didn't use any inside ever. But uh, I'm immediately upon getting out, that was the biggest thing. I have a he- very huge family and everyone wanted to be in contact and, and that kind of thing. So most of my trip to San Francisco was on the phone um, uh, <laughs> because there were so many uh, individuals that were trying to be in contact. I was the third female commuted um, and the second one released. So there was a, a, you know, a whole lot of extra attention there uh, with my job with California Coalition for Women Prisoners. I had worked with them for 15 years inside and knew that there was some type of job opportunity going to be available to me. Um, I pressured very hard and started the work for Drop LWAP. So um, I didn't realize that it was that work that was going to move to this this level. But there was a a few of us that were pushing the movement pretty hard. And and so I knew I had opportunity, but I, I just remember I kept thinking, like, how am I going to work? But I, I remember just being absolutely afraid of where else besides McDonald's am I going to get a job and who's going to trust me to do things. And I think partly it was because I was so used to seeing the revolving door cycle, not only with my mom and my own family, but also in the institution setting. So I was so afraid that there was no way I was going to make it. And instead I was like, absolutely, there's resources out here and I'm never going to turn them down again. Because maybe if I would have went to a church, uh, I doubt I would have, but Maybe if I would have, they would have helped me. There could have been somewhere else that would have helped me. So I knew I needed to do everything I could out here to make sure I've used every single resource available. And I'm really trying to do that. Department of Rehabilitation, they didn't rehabilitate me inside, but out here they're helping pay for college. So, I mean, there's ways to get that support if you're willing to say I'm in need. And before, I'll never let pride stand in the way of me getting help now. And you're continuing to help others as well, right? You're a coordinator for California Coalition of Women Prisoners. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you continue to support others? So I, I got a couple different jobs. Um, so I work with, with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners on their Drop LWAP campaign. So we work with both men and women when it comes to Drop LWAP. But for medical issues, things like that, the coalition has been for the last 26 years visiting inside the women's institutions and fighting for different medical or legal needs, that kind of thing. And so I continue to do that as well as the Drop LWAP, which is separate. It's just a, a different component of it, fighting for everything from people going to board because they've won their sentences or because they were juveniles when they were incarcerated. We have like over 200 individuals right now who are pending board that are pending board because they were juvenile when they were incarcerated. And so in order to support those individuals, um, you know, we we continue that movement. And then, of course, pushing our, our uh, new governor, Newsom, to uh, do everything he can to, to look at resentencing and second chance looks because we know how important it is. 
with that, I also work with Survived and Punished, which is a organization who helps fight for survivors who are currently incarcerated or pending incarceration so that the judge and jury gets a full look at their experience, not just the prosecutor's side, um, which is extremely important. And then I work with the National Leadership Council um, with all former LWOPs across the United States to fight the issue on all levels, because we know that there are many individuals um, like myself who are incarcerated because of circumstances, not actual things they're accountable for in a crime. You're definitely doing a lot. And I love to hear that. (laughs) Why do you think it's so important to have those women like you or whether it's a man or a woman, someone that's been incarcerated, having a seat at those tables? Right. Because sometimes there's people pushing for those um, organizations, but they don't have that true personal experience. So why is it so important or what advantages have you found to, um, you know, you having that experience and working in these organizations? So a perfect example is a bill that we're doing right now for or that we just got signed for compassionate release to try to support individuals at the end of their life to be able to pass away at home. So that's a, a perfect example of both politicians as well as you know people in the community not understanding how important it is just to treat people as if they're human and what they actually go through in our skilled nursing facility. If they're in the skilled nursing facility, depending on the individual. And so we want to, um, you know, make sure that they're fully aware of what um, what a, an individual inside goes through. And they can't do that unless they get experiences from others. And as long as we're educating about what it's really like, individuals aren't sitting in prison playing dominoes and cards all day. They have to work every single day, just like everyone else. And the community doesn't understand that or know that. If they're not working, they're losing all privileges and being in a different form of segregation if they're not working. Most people inside prison work harder than the community out here because not only are they doing the work mandated by the state, but then they're doing the hard healing work in order to get back out to the community where people out here in the community need that same kind of healing work. Unfortunately, it's not as available as it is in there. And so I think having the personal experience and information coming directly from people inside is so important. I have a last question for you. Um, Like we said in, in the beginning, we have interviewed people who have done crimes. So I wanted to know, can you explain what being wrongfully convicted felt like while you were in prison, knowing you didn't do something, you didn't do the incident that took place? Can you explain that? I think the hardest part in that isn't, you know, I always used to say, like, if this is where you want me to be for any other reason, I'm willing to be here. If that means that that even if it means I leave Justin and Crystal out in the community and I'm in prison for the rest of my life, just let it be any other reason but losing Justin and I can handle it. And maybe I couldn't, but but that's what I felt. That's what I feel today. Also, I, I also feel like it should have been me. It was supposed to be me. And so that's that's a hard part. And I don't say that absolutely don't say that lightly. It's not um 
it's not that, you know, I, I, I want to die. I just would, would rather him not have that suffering, but doing the time that was easy. I could do that on my head. The hard part was losing him and knowing that that's what I was dealing with, not, you know, having the incarceration. I'm used to seeing everyone around me, some form of um, injustice in that process, you know, of, of talking to people and finding out that, that, you know, the jury didn't hear this or that, or, or this evidence didn't come in. I'm used to that every single day. There's somebody inside just like me who's incarcerated because someone else committed a crime and you're supposed to know what they're doing or what they're thinking. Unfortunately, that's how felony murder works. And that's how they scare the communities into believing that everyone should be incarcerated. So I'm used to that. That's okay. I just didn't want it to have to be him. And regardless of where I was going to be, what was I going to do to make it better? Because I couldn't live in the the violent environment, the repressive environment that I entered the institution as. The only groups that were offered were NA and AA. That was it, which is great, but I couldn't even get in it, even if I wanted to. As an addict from before I had the right to consent, I couldn't even get in the group because of the amount of time I was serving. So there was nothing we had to create it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's been a really traumatic, but also incredible experience and journey. And I know our listeners are gonna gain a lot from it. And thank you for, for you being you, being such a persistent person and now changing the world, right? Not just your own community, but taking this national and trying to change legislation as well. It's inspiring for me to keep on fighting. Just wanted to thank you for being on The Hardest Up. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we really appreciate you being so vulnerable and telling us your story. And we love that you have been able to, even though you you were sentenced to prison, you have been able to find the beauty of it. And you've been able to help other people as well. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening to The Hardest Up. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you're enjoying our conversations, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll see you next time.